Our next guest is Alisa Childers. Alisa has a rapidly growing YouTube channel and a podcast dedicated to the study of apologetics and current issues within the church. And she's one of our first repeat guests on Takeaways. Uh, Alisa, welcome back. Last time you joined us, we talked about what is apologetics and how to answer some of the big questions surrounding Christianity and the Bible. Uh, so we've just, we've just talked about what the gospel is, but now I'd like to shift the perspective to talking about what the Bible isn't. Often uh, there are things that are masquerading as the Bible, different religious systems, and uh, we want to know how to be on the lookout for false good news. Uh, is, this, mm. is this easy to do, to spot counterfeits, or is it harder than you might think? It depends. <laughs> I think that for people who are soaked in the Word of God every day, if, if there are Christians who really know what they believe and why they believe it, it becomes a lot easier to spot counterfeits. It's kind of like uh, when I go and speak, I'll show a picture of my daughter at the beginning of the talk, and then at the end of the talk, I'll show another picture, but it's actually not my daughter. But the audience doesn't know that because the little girl looks just like her. But what I explain mm. to them is if any member of my family were here, and they saw that picture, they would immediately know that that's a counterfeit version of my daughter, and they would probably wonder why I'm putting that picture up there. But for the people who don't know her, they were easily fooled. And so I think that's a good analogy for us as Christians to think about. It it's becomes less difficult to spot the false gospels when you are really, really well acquainted with the real thing. This is something that was going on in the early church that the Apostle Paul even warned the churches about. Listen to this. Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He says, evidently some of you uh, are being thrown into confusion and tr and by people who are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. I mean, this is no joke. He's not playing around. He's saying that the gospel is true and anything other than that gospel is false and that you are under the curse of God if you preach the wrong gospel. Uh, why is why is why is he making such a big deal about this? Well, it's interesting. When I studied this for the first time, I looked through all the books of the New Testament to see what they had to say about false teaching, false gospels, uh, false prophets, false teachers. And I was kind of surprised to learn that virtually every book of the New Testament addresses that topic directly. And then the two or three that don't address it directly at least implicitly encourage Christians to stay the course on the one true gospel. In fact, the book of Jude describes it as the one faith. There is one faith, one definition of what Christianity is that's been passed down through the ages to all of us. And as, as we learn from Paul, anything that deviates from that is, is a false gospel. And it's, and it's so important. And I think they make such a big deal about it because this isn't just like deciding what shirt to put on or what flavor of ice cream uh. you're going to choose for that day. The gospel has life and death consequences. These are people's eternal souls that are at stake. And so that's why when 
And when I talk about a false gospel or a false teaching, I'm really careful to make distinctions as best I can between things that Christians would be free to disagree about. I'm sure, Kirk, you and I don't agree on every finer point of, of theology on maybe some of the issues where the Bible is less clear, but the Bible is really clear about the gospel, about the, the human need for salvation and the salvation that Jesus came to offer us. And so there are all throughout church history, there have been these false gospels as the early apostles almost immediately had to deal with a workspace gospel that was creeping into the church. And I think throughout church history, we see those things, they kind of morph and change in the way that they look, but at their core, there's a lot of similarities. So what do some of these false gospels look like today? For example, one that I just wrote a book about is called Progressive Christianity. And this is a movement that really can be traced back well, you could trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but in its current iteration, you could really trace it back to the emergent movement in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s. And what that has morphed into is a movement of Christians who are essentially saying, look, we're open to re-examining, reinterpreting, and even rejecting not just what we would consider to be secondary issues of the gospel, but actually core gospel issues themselves. So for example, in progressive Christianity, it's it's a bit hard to define because it's very fluid. It's constantly changing and morphing. There's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella. But as I studied the movement, what I learned is that although they're not so united in what they affirm, they're pretty united in what they deny. And I'm talking about the thought leaders that are writing the books and speaking at the conferences. And number one is most progressive Christians will deny the idea that humans are inherently sinful and that our sin would separate us from God. And so they're not going to deny that people sin or they do evil things, but the message in progressive Christianity is, hey, you just need to realize how beloved you are. God created you. He called you good. You just need to embrace that, embody that, and realize that you're already inherently united with God. But that is a completely opposite message from the historic Christian gospel, which teaches, hey, God is holy. Humans are sinful, and God can't have any unity with sin, and that causes a separation, which is why we need salvation. So this isn't just arguments over how to baptize people. We're talking about core gospel salvation issues. People want to believe that they're good. People don't want to have this poor self-image. Uh, and I hear these kinds of messages all the time. You know, if God had a refrigerator, he'd have a magnet picture of you right there on the front. He cares about you. He thinks about you all the time. He has this lonely, vacant place in his heart, and he just wants, you know, you to come and, and uh, choose him. Well, uh, what's wrong with those kinds of ideas? What's wrong with that? I want my children to know that I love them. Uh, what's wrong with us feeling like God is, is wildly, madly in, in, in love with his creatures? Well, he does love his creatures, but what you've just described, I think where it's flip-flopped is what you've described as a very man or self-focused type of salvation, where our salvation starts with God. And this is very countercultural. And for many people who have grown up in our culture today, like maybe 21 and under, they're constantly being bombarded with these messages through their media, through their music, through everything they're taking in that tells them, hey, you just need to realize how beautiful you are. In fact, you need to dig down to the core of yourself and you're going to, you know, to the girls, they'll say, you know, unleash your inner goddess and just let her out 
out into the world. And I can see why we might have an instinct toward that because we don't want our kids to feel bad about themselves. We don't want people to walk around beating themselves up and saying, oh gosh, I'm just horrible. But I think the gospel gives us a really good solution to that. And that is starting with the doctrine of the Imago Dei, understanding that every human being that's ever been born has been created in the image and likeness of God. Mm. And because of that, everyone has, has dignity and value and great worth. But there's a big but. Because of the fall, because of the introduction of sin and death into the world, all of us have distorted that image in one way or another because of sin. And so that's why we need God's saving grace. Mm. And so through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, putting our trust in him and his work, then we become realigned with God. And then as we work out our, our sanctification process for the rest of our lives, we become more and more like that a mirror image. It's not that that mirror image is lost, that that imago Dei is not lost through sin, but it's distorted. And so that's what sanctification is, is where we're made more and more like Christ uh, throughout our lives. And so I think we should derive our feelings about ourself, our self-esteem, if you will, not in our own merits, but in what Christ has accomplished for us and how much of him we see reflected in our lives. And I think that's going to be a much healthier way to approach that um, than just telling somebody, hey, look inside yourself and you're going to find this pot of gold down there because really all that they're going to do is dig down inside of themselves and still find a sinner that needs a savior. That's right, and I think that's why we have such a, a crisis in personal identity today, particularly in our young people, uh, is because they're looking down to try to figure out their true self and who they really are, and um, they're not going to find the answer until they, they look up and they find their identity in Christ. Um, Elisa, often we talk about Jesus plus, and this is the form that many of these false gospels come to us in is, yes, I believe in Jesus, uh, I have to believe in Jesus, but I also have to join this church. I have to believe in Jesus. Uh, I also have to be baptized and maybe baptized this way or two or three times uh, and, and, and all of these other things. That's always been one of the false gospels. Can you explain the difference to us between a workspace system and the gospel of grace and how works actually fits in? Because Jesus said, you'll, you'll know them by their fruits. Uh, James tells us fakes, faith without works is dead. So what is the relationship rightly understood? It's not our works that save us. You, there's nothing any of us can do to earn a place with God where he says, okay, I see what you've done and I'm gonna save you because you're just awesome or you're beautiful or adorable or whatever it might be. None of us can earn that. But this is the beauty of it. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, this whole thing happens. We become indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We become sealed by the Holy Spirit. He begins to, he regenerates us to where we want to be more and more like him. We begin to experience mm. conviction over our sin, and we want to repent, which means turn away from our sin and turn yes. towards Jesus. And I think so many people misunderstand even repentance. I think people have a works-based repentance, uh, attitude toward repentance, too, sometimes, where we think repentance means I have to, of my own will, stop sinning. Well, you can't. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. So it's turning to Christ saying, help me. I need help. And then throughout our lives, that sanctification process does its work. But this is something I think, as I mentioned earlier, we, we resist. 
I think we get a lot of messages in culture about self-sufficiency, personal autonomy, authenticity. This is a big theme we see in culture right now where we're told that really who you are is not so much um, you know, what you might be in Christ or what Christians might say about it, but it's actually something that you have to look inside and identify and then declare to the world and have everybody else affirm about you. That's a lot of pressure for young, especially young people who are growing up thinking, gosh, I got to figure out who I am so that everybody else can acknowledge it. it the, the beauty of grace is that it takes the pressure off you to do that, and you look to Christ, and you want to become more and more of a reflection of Christ as you live your lives. But when the Bible talks about fruit, good fruit and bad fruit, this is, this is where that stuff comes in. When you are saved, you will produce the fruits of, of that. So the Bible describes fruit, bad fruit, and good fruit really in moral terms. So if you're a Christian, you will bear the fruit of repentance. You will be convicted over your sin. You will want to help other people. There mm. will be uh, a fruit and works that flow out of you uh, that are a result of your salvation. Uh, Alisa, after the break, I'd love for you to share some pointers with us on how we can engage with our family and our friends in gospel-centered conversations, using apologetics as a tool to help them overcome their objections. You guys aren't gonna wanna miss this. We'll be right back. We're back with Alisa Childers. Uh, Alisa, uh, we just had a great conversation about what the gospel isn't. And now I wanna pivot the conversation to ask you as an apologist, how do we engage our family and friends in these kinds of gospel-centered conversations? It, it's not easy, right? You're, you're talking about the hockey game. You're talking about the price of gasoline. And all of a sudden you're like, this person needs to know Jesus. How can I get into conversations like that? Uh, often it happens when, when, when they ask us questions and, and sort of tee it up for us. So what are some of the common things that you're, you're getting from people right now that they want to know about? Well, when I go and speak and I'll do a Q&A, typically this is going to be a Christian audience. So yeah. what I find from young people is that they're not so much asking, does God exist? But they're trying to reconcile, is God good? And that's the, the question I think a lot of young people are asking because they're reading some difficult passages in the Old Testament and they're saying, well, how could God, you know, cause a flood and kill that many people? And so I think those are the types of questions that a lot of young people are wrestling with. Mm. But uh, I think in general that even among the atheists and things that I deal with online or the progressive Christians, there's really a lot of talk about is the God of the Bible even good? And so it's not so much the question, does he exist anymore? Although I'm sure, you know, there's, that's still a, a conversation, of course, but it's really, is the God of the Bible somebody that we would want to worship? Is he worthy of worship? So what are some of the characteristics of God? What's, what's some of the foundational stuff that we should know about the character of God to be able to answer questions like that? Right. So I think one of the reasons that's such a big question right now is because I think if you look past the maybe the last 20 years or so of church history and you look at the, a lot of the media and things that have been marketed to young people and even to the church, you see a really kind of dumbed down version of God. We see a, a God without wrath, a God without um, judgment, a, a God that wouldn't send anyone to hell. And that gets so repeated over and over again, we almost lose 
the the attributes of God that are so important to his character, mm. which are things like his wrath. And this is something I actually love to talk to young people about the wrath of God, because it's something I think they they have a lot of misunderstandings about. They might yes. be relating um, the, the wrathful, petty, uh, impetuous, drunken rages of people, maybe adults in their lives that were abusive, and they, they think, well, is that what God's wrath is? And so I love to try to untangle some of those knots yes. and help them understand that God's wrath, there was a theologian, I can't remember who it was, but he said, God's wrath is our only hope. And the reason for that is because look at look at everybody crying out for justice right now. God's wrath is what brings his justice. There will be justice. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful, because each one of us, we have a choice. We can actually receive God's justice, or we can receive his mercy. We have that choice now to trust in him or reject him. But we want God to have wrath because that means he will judge sin. He will He will provide a place and keep his promise to wipe away every tear from our eye where there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain for eternity in his presence. And he can't do that if he doesn't have wrath for sin. If he just lets sin into heaven, then heaven's just going to be another version of hell. And so I I think helping people understand why these doctrines are so beautiful, it's not like God is split into pieces where, gosh, we don't really understand his judgment and his wrath over here because his love seems like something else. They're literally the same thing. God is wrathful because he is love. Alisa, what about everyday conversations? When you want to introduce like what we just talked about, into a conversation, do you wait for somebody to ask you, well, how could your God be so good if he's going to, or do you bring up the conversations by, I don't know, asking them good questions? I, I think it can go either way. And what I always tell people, and it, from my own experience, is that conversations like that tend to go better when you kind of do a little diagnosis first. In apologetics, I've often heard it said, behind every question is a questioner. There's somebody asking the question for a reason. So, for example, if somebody asks about the moral character of God in the Old Testament, there may be something in their life where there, there's something underneath that question. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we can get to what that is, then we can better provide an answer or have a conversation. But so a couple examples here of just how this works out in my own life. Number one, I've learned that it is perfectly not just okay, but actually one of the most powerful apologetics can be to just say, I don't know. You know, that's a great question. I've never thought about that myself. Let's figure that out together. Because then you're inviting someone into a back and forth type of conversation rather than just sort of lording yourself over them and saying, well, here's what the correct answer is. And so I think people get intimidated to start getting into apologetic conversations with people because they think, well, what if I don't know the answer? But there is so much beauty in just saying, you know, I don't know. Give me a couple weeks. I'm going to look into that. And can we come back for coffee and discuss that? Um, Another way I do this in my daily life is with my kids. Now, this drives them crazy. I will admit this to you, but um, I sometimes will take statements that they make and show if you carry that out like all the way down the rabbit trail— what is the end result of what you're saying right now? So here's an example. One of my children, I will not say which one, said to me, Hey, Mom, did you know that words don't have meanings? And I said, Really? Where did you hear that? And she said, Well, Spider-Man said that. And I said, Wow, thank you so much for just— offering to do the dishes when you get home from school. I'll be sure and save them for you. And she was 
like, what? I didn't offer to do this. I said, oh, but words don't have meaning. So I can just interpret your words any way that I like. The, the, you know, the intent of the person communicating the words doesn't really matter because words don't have meaning. So thank you so much. I will save the dishes for you. And then, of course, my my child was like, all right, I get it. You know? right. <laughs> but there's right. ways you can show or you can show them that it doesn't work logically even. How do you navigate emotionally charged conversations? What if somebody does get upset with you and they think that you are trying to, you know, one-up them or you've touched on a hot-button issue that actually is very painful to them and they get upset with you? Uh, what do you do? I think in those types of situations, you stop and you listen. And there's if somebody's becoming emotionally charged about something, there's a wound there. There's something there that's causing that emotional reaction. And what I would probably tend to do in that moment is put the intellectual arguments aside for a moment and minister to the person's emotional needs. Mm. Maybe try to figure out, um, you know, what, what has happened. In many cases, maybe somebody had a really bad church experience where they experienced legitimate spiritual abuse or, or something along those lines. And I think in that case, acknowledging that and and uh, cry with those who, who cry, the Bible says. And I think that can be a very powerful apologetic to say, you know, maybe what your particular experience is, can you tell me about that? Because I, I don't like that that happened to you. I, I don't, uh, Jesus doesn't like that that happened to you. I want to hear about that if you, if you want to share it. And then minister to the needs of that person and then worry about the intellectual stuff after because often people, in my study of even this movement of deconstruction, what I find is that people have a lot of wounds for whatever reason, whatever their personal experiences might be, uh. and it becomes very difficult for them to disentangle the actual gospel from everything else they were told was the gospel. And so sometimes it's just sitting with somebody and crying with those who cry and ministering to those needs first uh, to show them that you know Christians aren't all just you know these intellectual snobs or whatever else they might think Christians are, uh, but that I genuinely care about you and I love you and I want to know, you know what's going on in your heart. I think that that can be a, a, an important way to show the love of Christ to our friends and family. Elisa, what are some resources that people can get their hands on to teach them how to use apologetics uh, graciously and effectively? Well, there, thankfully, we're living in the digital age where there are some great podcasts. You've had a lot of really great guests on your show to help equip people, many of whom have written wonderful books. I would, as far as the how, like how to have conversations, there's lots of apologetics books that give you the the what, the actual answers to a lot of the questions. But there's a great book called Tactics by Greg Kokel that can help you learn how to ask really well-placed questions to keep conversation going mm. without uh, seeming like you're just lecturing somebody. Or, or you can navigate those emotionally charged conversations. I think that's a really good resource. Um, there are some really great uh, podcasts out there. And uh, thankfully, there's just audiobooks. I have so many different ways for people to take in content these days. Alisa, I know you've got a, a brand new book that's out. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, I have um, a book that came out a couple years ago called Another Gospel, and that is about the movement of progressive Christianity. And then I have a new book coming out in October called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. And so that one is really dealing with this whole God of self that we're taught in culture, just this idea that you just need to dig down and find that pot of gold inside of yourself and unleash your inner goddess, live untamed, and we sort of go through 
through all of these lies like live your truth, you are enough, you only live once, you're perfect just as you are, and we address how those ideas fail logically and just on a common sense level, and then we go to scripture and we see how the Bible has such a better story to tell and such a better answer to give for each one of those slogans. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.